Welcome to Traditionally Talking, the podcast of the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations. I'm your host, journalist Charles Parkiner, and in this podcast, we yarn with traditional owners from across the state about some of the amazing work being undertaken to care for and connect with country, build stronger culture and communities, and much more. The Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations acknowledges all traditional owners across the land now known as Victoria. We pay respect to their connection to land, waters, culture and law, and to Elders past, present and those who will lead in years to come. Joining me now on the podcast for our very first Traditionally Talking Federation podcast is the CEO of the Federation, Paul Payton, a Gunai and Monero man who's been at the helm of the Federation for, for about two and a half years now, Paul, is it? You're on three years next month, Charles. <laughs> and what are the big achievements that you think have been made over these times? Bear in mind, it's a pretty tough time recently. Yeah, well, I came into the role uh, in 2020 when COVID had hit. And it was a huge impact on our communities. And at the time, the focus was to protect our communities and make sure that they were safe, but also to continue the work that we've been doing over the years to ensure that that work isn't lost. Uh, There isn't a pause button on that work to ensure that that important work around the developing of particular pieces of work, strategic pieces of work that see traditional owners' rights and interests recognised through policy and legislation. That's fairly broad terms. So how yeah. does that sort of work actually play out in practical terms? Well, I think we've been working for many years where we've reached our 10-year milestone this year in uh, 2023, and we've been doing a lot of work over that time to have a voice for traditional owners, traditional owner corporations, to be able to have a political engagement with the government and over that time we've really achieved a lot and we have to be able to speak in government language to be able to have a relationship at that level to make change and for us to do that we have to do it in a way that government can act on our rights and interests. So what sort of relationship do you have with the state government? We have a very I would say positive and respectful relationship with government. Government recognises the rights of traditional owners through mechanisms such as UNDRIP and the self-determination framework that it established in 2018, I think it was. And that relationship has been very robust. And for us, we need to be assertive about those rights and ensure that government is meeting its obligations around our rights. And to do that, uh, we need to be able to have open and frank conversations but respectful and work in partnership with the government to be able to ensure that those interests on both sides are met. The Federation, as you've mentioned, started off 10 years ago, and this was the initiative, I believe, of six traditional owner corporations around Victoria. You've mentioned that this really is, an, well, essentially it's a peak body, isn't it, representing those organisations to government? Well, that's right. It, it acts like a peak body. Yet we don't say that we're a peak body. We're an advocacy body because we recognise 
those individual rights of traditional owners and traditional owner groups to be able to assert their own rights and interests and to be able to have a direct relationship with government because that's important that those relationships are held between government and traditional owners. But as a convener, as an advocacy body, we perform a function of bringing together collectively traditional owners to assert those rights as a collective because those rights exist across traditional owner boundaries and the impacts that we're seeking to achieve are at a statewide level that can only be achieved with government. Take, for example, some of the work we do around strategic work. That has to be at a statewide level. Individual rights can be recognised, but to be able to apply that to a policy, you can't have individual policies that differentiate across different TO boundaries. Now, what sort of policies are we talking about? I know that we've got some interviews lined up for this podcast where we're talking to TO groups about land management and game management. What are some of the key policies that we'd see the Federation involved in? Well, we've been involved in the development of water policy, fire policy, native foods and botanicals policy, economic policy that seeks to understand the existing barriers that exist for traditional owners to be able to assert their rights and pursue their interests and those strategies seek a pathway to actually see those rights being recognised or policies being changed so that traditional owners can meet their aspirations in those particular spaces. So it's really important that we do that to be able to make informed policy based on traditional owners' individual rights and interests that form part of a collective statewide strategy that ensures that all those rights are incorporated into any new policy going forward. I recognise, and so do a lot of other people, the work that you are doing and traditional owner corporations across the state are doing is to benefit the lives and the cultural well-being of First Nations people across the state. But what about the impact on the state as a whole? Do you see that the work that you are doing with your member organisations does have benefit for the broader community? Without a doubt. In my mind, the work that we do not only impacts traditional owners, but it provides benefit to the broader community and to the health of our country. These days, the community is far more aware of the health of country through climate change and those types of situations that we all face. And the broader community is more acutely aware of traditional owners' understanding of country and want to be able to understand and tap into that knowledge that sits within traditional owner communities to be able to better manage country into the future. And the work that we do goes towards enabling traditional owners to manage country and to be able to respond to the effects that we're seeing today around climate change and so forth. So we need to be able to ensure that those policies are are put into effect so that all communities can benefit. And, you know, we could switch to areas of economic development, employment and tourism, the, the areas that we're working in as well. And that has a benefit to all the communities if we're looking at the visitor economy and what they're seeking in regards to an authentic experience, 
in Indigenous experience as visitors to our state, then to be able to enable traditional owners to lead that area and to provide that experience has much broader impacts to other businesses that are within those communities. It has uh, impacts to employment across the state and our economy even more broadly. What, though, are some clear examples that we could look at now and see, yep, this is where there are benefits being afforded to not just the communities but to the broader society across Victoria? There are many examples of the application of our work out in communities already through the establishment of, of the strategies. For example, the Native Foods and Botanicals Strategy and the work that it's seeking to achieve and the outcomes it's, it's seeking to achieve through the greater recognition and protection of Indigenous cultural and uh, intellectual property and how that applies in the Native Foods and Botanicals area to be able to recognise traditional knowledge is that a big issue out there in the community? Are there people who are essentially ripping off the ICIP of TOs? The native foods and botanicals industry is heavily reliant on Indigenous knowledge that exists within the products that are being developed. And there is no recognition or benefit back to communities for that knowledge. Mm. And we need to be able to right some of those wrongs to ensure that that knowledge is respected and, you know, some of the challenges we face around copyright policy and legislation that doesn't properly recognise Indigenous knowledges. There's not a neat fit between Indigenous knowledge is understood. So it seems to me that what you're doing in a polite way is saying that you're working to try and address the great level of cultural and knowledge misappropriation that's been going on for decades, if not longer. Yeah, you could could say it that way as well. (laughs) (laughs) What about other examples, Paul? For example, you were mentioning before the environment and climate change. What examples do we have when it comes to land management? There are many examples. Uh, The cultural fire comes particularly to mind. We've used fire for generations thousands of generations to manage country and we see examples over recent decades with significant fire events particularly in this state one of the hottest states in the world yeah fire and that's because we haven't tapped into that that knowledge in the way that we manage fire as a state there are examples particularly in um, Gippsland or up on Jara country in Jajaran country just to name a few and there's many others as well where our mobs are out on country working alongside state agencies undertaking cultural burns to be able to reduce fire load and protect communities as well as restore cultural knowledge and cultural custodianship over country. So they're the types of impacts that we see by the work that we do that having government working in partnership and invested in this process to be able to have that impact on the ground. Paul... There's obviously a great deal that's been done over the past 10 years and over the course of this podcast, we'll definitely be looking at some of those initiatives, including the fire management and the ICIP, those examples you've already given. What about the next 10 years? The Federation's not going away, there's no doubt about that, it's firmly established. What do you have in mind for the Federation, at least for the foreseeable future, maybe not the next decade? Over the past 10 years, there's been a significant amount of change in Victoria. 
with the recognition of Indigenous rights, a self-determination agenda, working towards treaty now, then there's certainly recognition of that work that we've done and continue to do Mm. contributes quite immensely to that work. As we now understand cultural fire and native foods, then that puts traditional owners in a good negotiating position at the treaty table. So you see that the work that the Federation is doing here will actually contribute to the efforts of the First Peoples Assembly? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I was just speaking to the Assembly earlier today and uh, there's an agreement there that this work will contribute to understanding and negotiating treaty. So we want to continue to do that work. We want traditional owners to be able to come to the negotiation table in the best position and how we can support treaty readiness for traditional owners is is a question that we're now asking ourselves as well as traditional owners, how do we, how do we support treaty readiness? What does treaty readiness look like? You know, Are we ready now? Do we need to understand all those other areas of negotiation yeah. to be able to form a strong position and get a good outcome from a treaty negotiation. Maybe this is something also that we should pursue in another podcast, but it would be good maybe in a few months' time to have a yarn. Where does the Federation fit in to treaty readiness and preparedness right across the state? Aside from working with the Assembly, what are some other goals maybe that you personally have for the Federation? Yeah, well, we want to continue to support traditional owner corporations in their goals, uh, ensuring that their rights are being recognised. But we're also sort of uh, you know, asking the question about how can we better serve traditional owners? How can we support them in their nation-building activities? You know, do they need research done in a particular area to support their treaty readiness? Can we be partners with them? Can we support innovation and development that supports their growth and futures. Paul, until next time, thanks very much. Thanks, Charles. Great chatting with you.